Thank you, Father, for the testimony of our dear brother Paul and the the glorious work of the gospel in his life to save him and to use him. A weak vessel, a flawed vessel, but a vessel that was endowed with the eternal truth of the gospel, the most wondrous and majestic message man has ever received. And he used that gospel message to accomplish your purposes. And Father, that same gospel has continued to be poured into weak vessels for the only kind of vessel that can receive it is a weak and broken vessel. And you have continued to use it for your glory. We thank you. Thank you for the privilege of being saved by the gospel. Thank you for the privilege of declaring the gospel. Would you give us wisdom this morning to be reminded of the nature of the gospel and to be bold with this gospel you have granted to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Over the month of January, I'm trying to consider with you a number of different facets of our spiritual life, spiritual disciplines, if you will. Two weeks ago, we looked at the Scriptures and the place of the Scriptures in our lives. Last week, we looked at prayer and what prayer is working in us and how we pray for one another. Um, Next week, we're um, going to be looking at the church and the function of the church and and our commitment to the church and what the church provides. And then um, the last week, we're going to be talking about worship, corporate worship, particularly um, communion and, and coming to the ordinances of Christ. This morning, I want to think with you about another discipline, and it's the discipline of the gospel and the discipline of sharing the gospel, communicating the gospel. I don't want to scare you, but it's the word evangelism. And uh, we, we've talked for years about evangelism, and, um, and the, the, the church, as we saw last week, our church does a lot of things really well. And over the years, one of the things that we have not done as well as other things is evangelism. But in God's grace, He's changing that. And, and, and we're seeing... We're seeing little threads and, and even roadways and, and dare we say even highways going through the work of our ministry, transforming us both individually and corporately as being more bold with the gospel and evangelism. As we think about evangelism, the key to evangelism is understanding what the gospel is. And, and we go with the gospel. We go to declare the simplicity of the gospel. And now, now if you're to ask the question, what is the gospel even in the context of the church, even if in the context of this church, you're liable to get as many different answers as there are people who are being asked the question. There just doesn't seem to be a lot of consensus on what the gospel is. And friends, if we're going to be evangelistic, we need to be, we need to be clear in understanding what the gospel is that we are declaring. In his book, What is the Gospel? Greg Gilbert recounts some of the more common responses that he's that he's acquired and picked up and found over the years. Listen to some attempts to explain what the gospel is. The good news is God wants to show you His incredible favor. He wants to fill your life with new wine. But are you willing to get rid of your old wineskins? Will you start thinking bigger? Will you enlarge your vision and get rid of those old negative mindsets that hold you back? Or... The message of Jesus may well be called the most revolutionary of all time. The radical revolutionary empire of God is here, advancing by reconciliation and peace, expanding by faith, hope, and love, 
beginning with the poorest, the weakest, the meekest, and the least. It's time to change your thinking. Everything is about to change. It's time for a new way of life. Believe me. Follow me. Believe this good news so that you can learn to live by it and be part of the revolution. The good news is that God's face will always be turned toward you, regardless of what you have done, where you have been, or how many mistakes you've made. He loves you and is turned in your direction looking for you. Or, the gospel itself refers to the proclamation that Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah, is the one true and only Lord of the world. Or, good news... God is becoming king and he is doing it through Jesus. And therefore, phew, God's justice, God's peace, God's world is going to be renewed. And in the middle of that, of course, it's good news for you and me. But that's the derivative from or the corollary of the good news, which is a message about Jesus that has a second order effect on me and you and us. But the gospel itself is not about the sort of person about uh, this sort of a person, and this can happen to you. That's the result of the gospel rather than the gospel itself. Salvation is the result of the gospel, not the center of the gospel itself. And I don't think any of us understood anything about what he was trying to say, and frankly, I'm grateful for that. Uh, Or this, the gospel is the proclamation of Jesus in two senses. It's the proclamation announced by Jesus, the arrival of God's realm of possibility, his kingdom in the midst of human structures of possibility. But it's also the proclamation about Jesus, the good news that in dying and rising, Jesus made the kingdom he proclaimed available to us. Or, as a Christian, I'm simply trying to orient myself around a particular way of living, the kind of way that Jesus taught is possible. And I think that the way of Jesus is the best possible way to live. Over time, when you purposely try to live the way of Jesus, you start noticing something deeper going on. You begin realizing that the reason this is the best way to live is that it is rooted in profound truths about how the world is. You find yourself living more and more in tune with ultimate reality. You're more and more in sync with how the universe is at its deepest levels. The Christians, first Christians, announced this way of Jesus as the good news. Or, my understanding of Jesus' message is that he teaches us to live in the reality of God now, here and today. It's almost as if Jesus keeps saying, change your life, live this way. As Gilbert notes in his response to those answers about what the gospel is, if you had never heard of Christianity, what would you think after hearing those few statements? You'd obviously know that Christians intended to be communicating some message that is good, but beyond that, it's just a jumble. Is the good news simply that God loves me and that I need to start thinking more positively? Is it that Jesus is a really good example who can teach me to live a loving and compassionate life? It might have something to do with sin and forgiveness. Apparently, some Christians think this good news has something to do with Jesus' death, and others apparently don't. What, what is the gospel? What, what are the basics of the gospel? How can we communicate that message? What is the message that we are to be communicating so that people might be redeemed from their sin and put in right fellowship with God? The one thing that we cannot afford to do, my brothers and sisters, is be unclear or wrong about this. Some things it's okay to get close to the truth Um, In horseshoes and hand grenades, close counts. Close does not count with the gospel. To be close and almost to the gospel 
means you are completely unsaved and completely under the wrath of God. Close does not count. We must be precise. We must be accurate. We must be, must be clear. So this morning, I want to think with you about what the gospel is. Not, not every time you have a gospel conversation with someone will you be able to give them all the information that I'm going to give you today, but, but the core of it needs to be there. The centrality of it needs to be there. And I want to think with you about the gospel around six words. Now, some of us are advancing in years, Jack, not just you, but some of the rest of us as well. And some of our brains don't function quite as sharply as they used to, but friends, you can remember six words. And you can remember six Bible verses that go with those six words so that you can communicate the gospel with clarity. So I want to think with you about the six key words of the gospel. I want to think with you about the gospel in three minutes. And then I think I want to think with you about the gospel in one sentence. Here's the question we're asking this morning. How can we be more effective in communicating the gospel? Don't Don't you want to be clear with the gospel? Wouldn't it be good to stand here next year at our state of the church and say, we had more baptisms of people coming to Christ this year than we've ever had in the history of our church. Well, friends, if something like that is going to take place, then we have to be clear with the gospel. We have to preach the gospel. We have to preach the right gospel so that people can hear it. How can we be more effective by communicating the gospel? It starts by knowing the gospel. We have to know the gospel. So here's the gospel in six words. The gospel in six words. The first word is grace. The basic meaning of the word grace is that if something is undeserved or unmerited, it is a gift. Salvation is a free gift. So Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We, we don't pay for forgiveness. We don't acquire forgiveness through any kind of payment or any kind of merit or any kind of activity. And yet it has always been the heart of man to attempt to acquire um, salvation by some meritorious act or even by purchasing it. And that goes as far back as the beginning of the early church. So Acts chapter 8, there's a man named Simon who believes in the gospel. And uh, Acts chapter 8 tells us, starting in verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John and And Peter and John came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because he, the Spirit, had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they began laying hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, Now, when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You, you thought that you could buy not just salvation, but something that comes through salvation. You thought that you could buy the working of the Holy Spirit in your life through financial gifts. You have no part or portion portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Listen to verse 22. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours. And pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Friends, an attempt to buy or merit salvation or anything that flows from salvation is wickedness. 
Salvation is a free gift. It is not something we earn. It is not something we deserve. It is not something we perish. It started in the early church, or it's not something that we purchase. That started in the early church, and, and friends, that's still alive today. I've told this story a number of times, I think, but um, a number of years ago, Warren Buffett, and decided to give away his fortune, and so he aligned himself with Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and they had a press conference to talk about all the money he was giving away. That's a problem in and of itself, but that's another, another point for another illustration another day. Over 20 years, he committed to give away $30 billion, with a B, dollars, a billion and a half dollars a year for 20 years. And at the press conference announcing it, this is what he said. There is more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way, end quote. Well, friends, he has never been more wrong in his life. And if that is what he is is trusting to get to heaven, he will never get to heaven, for man can never purchase his way into heaven. Man can never merit his way into heaven. Salvation is not earned. It is not deserved. It is, it is not something that we accomplish on our own. We, we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the free gift of God, not of works, so that no one will boast. There is boasting in relation to the gospel, but it's not boasting in ourselves. That's what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. It's not about us. It's not what we have accomplished. Our boasting is only in what God has accomplished in bringing us to salvation. His work and His reward. His gift. Reward might not be the right word there. His, his gift to us. Salvation is a free gift. It is something that we have received. 1 Corinthians 15. I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received. It's, it's a gift that has been granted. It is not something that we merit or earn, but is, it is received by us. Notice he says in verse 3, For I delivered you as of first importance that I also received. I also was granted this salvation. I also was given it as a gift. I did not work on it on my own. Verse 2. Um, he says, um, you also are saved. In other words, you, you don't save yourself, but there is another one who is acting on your life to bring you to salvation. Salvation is a gift, and gifts are always expressions of grace. We do not earn gifts. We do not merit gifts. We do not acquire gifts through our own um, purchases, our own attempts. A number of years ago, a man named Paul Smetala of Sheboygan Wisconsin um, went out to his garage and was working on repairing a uh, dryer. They had just moved into the house a little bit earlier, and the dryer was old. It was about 30 years old, but it was still functional, and they thought they could save some money by not replacing the dryer, and so they just kept using the dryer. But, but the dryer, you know, the bell or the buzzer thing that goes off when it finishes wasn't working anymore, so he thought he would, he would tear into the dryer and replace that, that bell or that buzzer um, so that they would know when the drying cycle was finished. So he, he took the dryer and he, he turned it on its side and opened up the back and money started pouring out. Now, it was, it's been in a home for 30 years, so there's no place to slot coins, but there were coins everywhere. In fact, there were so many, he counted them, 3,767 coins in the dryer, totaling $214.19. Now, he can't figure out where they got there, but he knows what he's going to do. He's saving them, and he's going to take a trip to Disney World um, as, as, um, as, as, as part of the, the use of that money. Now, friends, there's, there's nothing 
There's nothing in that $214 that he acquired on his own. It's plain and simply a gift. It's, it's a grace. It's something that was granted to him. And friends, our salvation is just the same. There's nothing we do to merit it. There's nothing we do to achieve it on our own. It is all simply only because of God's gift. It is, a, it is, it is grace. The gospel starts with grace. It must be grace because of what we understand with the second word, man. We are saved because, notice verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15, because of our sins. We are saved for our sin because, because Christ died for our sins. We, we had a sin debt that, that made us to be under the wrath of God. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are children of wrath. We're born as sinners. We are born deserving God's wrath. And we've seen this all throughout the book of Romans, haven't we? Romans chapter 3. We've seen, we've seen the sinfulness of man and man's inability to save himself. We see in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 that we are, we are born under sin. We are born as sinners and that sin is pervasive all the way through our lives. There's no aspect of our lives that isn't touched by sin. And then we, we compound the problem. We're not only sinners by nature, but we're also sinners by activity and action. So, so we are sinners and we do sin. And, and that, is, that is the story of our lives. There is, my friends, no person that can save himself because every person is in need of salvation. It's like a man in quicksand trying to pull himself out. He can't do it. And, 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 and it's our sin debt that keeps us there. There is no, no such thing as we are kind of sinful but mostly okay. Though isn't that the way that our culture sees it? Isn't that the way most people would explain it to you? We, we tend to think of sin as only missing the mark, which, which focuses only on, on the activity of that particular sin at that particular moment. And we're just, we're just slightly askew. We're, we're just slightly off. And friends, the problem is not just that we have missed the mark. The problem is that we have, we, have, we have not just missed it slightly, but we have rebelled against it. We have shot at a different target. We're uninterested in the righteousness of God. We're uninterested in pleasing God. We don't want to do what He commands us to do, or we don't want to do what He commands us to do His way. We don't want Him. And the problem is not just that we're slightly off, but we are completely off. We have gone a long ways away from the standard of God. And it's not just what we do, that, con- that condemns us. It's also what we don't do that condemns us. So, so there are things that we ought to be doing and we don't do those things either. So an opportunity to give a, a, a gracious word, a kind word, a thankful word, and it goes undone. I won't ask for a show of hands. I'll raise mine. I've done this, I think, once. Actually, more than once. Um, you ever been in the grocery store and you're in a hurry, right? So... Your wife has sent you the list. I have problems keeping to the list as it is anyway. But my wife has sent me this list and she said, would you, would you pick up these things on the way home? And you, you walk around the corner and you see somebody at the end of the aisle you haven't seen in, in three years. And you go, oh, no. I know that person. And if I start talking to him or her, we're going to be here for 45 minutes. And I don't have 45 minutes. Which being translated means really means I don't want to spend the 45 minutes. And so you're at the one end of the aisle, that person hasn't seen you, and they're at the other end of the aisle who's gone down. Yeah, okay, so there's one other person, right? And you've avoided that person. Why? You had an opportunity to minister grace to them, and you've avoided them. Friends, that's your condemnation. That's my condemnation. 
It's not just what we do. It's not just what we don't do. It's also what's in our minds. It's also what's in our heart. It's also our desires, our longings. It may not flesh itself out. It may not actually be produced in us, but it's the things we're thinking about and the desires that we have. All of those things condemn us. And the problem is we don't have to just be kind of perfect But if the standard is perfection, and the standard is perfection, because Jesus says, Matthew 5.48, therefore you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. If the standard is perfection, that means absolute perfection every time in every way for the full duration of your life. And friends, if you are not perfect once, that, that means you can never be perfect again. So, so, so it, this sin that is pervasive through our lives, just condemns us and kills us. We, we cannot stand before God. We cannot achieve any kind of righteousness on our own. Listen to what the prophet Amos says. Uh, Hosea Joel, Amos, chapter 7, verse 7. The prophet says this, And he showed me, And behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. You know what a plumb line is, right? So it's a a string with a weight at the end, and you just get an absolute perfect straight line. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A plumb line. And then the Lord said to me, Behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. In other words, I'm going to... I'm going to evaluate my people Israel. I'm going to take the standard of my absolute perfect righteousness and I'm going to put it up next to the nation of Israel. I'm going to see what I see and where they are in terms of righteousness. And then he says, I will spare them no longer. I'm going to evaluate them. I'm going to judge them. I'm going to find them to be inadequate and I'm going to judge them. Friends, no man is self-reliant. No man is independent. No man can make himself right before God. We are inadequate to the task. Twenty years ago, the actress Sophia Loren said, I am not a practicant, but I pray. I read the Bible. It's the most beautiful book ever written. I should go to heaven. Otherwise, it's not nice. I haven't done anything wrong. My conscience is very clean. My soul is as white as those orchids over there. And I should go straight, straight to heaven. Oh, friends, there's a woman that is deluded about the extent of her sin, the pervasiveness of her sin, and her inability to save herself. The gospel in six words, we need grace because of what man is. We also need to understand not just what man is, but who God is. And God is a loving and merciful God. It's often said, isn't it, that God is love? That's true. Absolutely true. First, first John chapter 4 tells us in verse 8, God is love. Use those very words in that very short phrase. The most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16, tells us that God is love. And God is, God is exceedingly, magnanimously, tremendously, mercifully compassionate towards us. He, does, he demonstrates His compassion and love towards us in sending Christ to be our Savior. He is a Father. God is a Father who gives us gifts of grace and kindness that we cannot begin to comprehend. Listen to what Jaya Packer says about the fatherhood of God and the love of God. He says, It is staggering that God should love sinners, yet it is true. God loves creatures who have become unlovely and one would have thought unlovable. There was nothing whatever in the objects of His love to call it forth. 
Nothing in man could attract or prompt it. Love among men is awakened by something in the beloved, but the love of God is free, spontaneous, unevoked, uncaused. God loves men because he has chosen to love them. He even loves unrighteous people. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Jesus, our Savior, says in Matthew chapter 5, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He is a loving God who, who is gracious and kind and magnanimous to those who are rebellious against Him. Our Savior was that same way. Luke chapter 13, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. You would not have it. Here is our God and here is our Savior who love men who even love, who even love the unregenerate. But that does not mean that God will leave sin unpunished. It, 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 does, it does not mean that God overlooks sin. It doesn't mean that, that God is hesitant to punish sin. He is not hesitant. The caricature of God is that he's, he is a loving and kind and a little bit muddle-headed and unseeing and unhearing God who just loves to do nice things and wouldn't ever harm anyone or do anything unkind or do anything, unkind's the wrong word, anything condemning toward anyone. My friends, that is not, that is not the picture of God. If you, if you're following along in our annual Bible reading plan. We, we, we read this this morning in Psalm 7. Psalm 7, starting in verse 10. My shield, the psalmist says, is with God who saves the upright in heart. If I will have protection, I get it from God's shield, from God's protection, and I get it from the salvation that He grants to those who are upright. Listen to what he says, verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Every day, every moment, God has wrath. If a man does not repent, he, God, will sharpen his sword. He has bent a bow and he has made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he, that is the unrepentant man, travails with wickedness and and he conceives mischief and he brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and he has fallen into the hole which he has made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pate. God is a God who is unafraid to condemn sinners. He will, as, as uh, Exodus 34 says, He will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. There is no debt from any sin that will be left unpaid. And, and, and friends, the tragedy is, is that, that God will send men to hell for their sins and they will never escape hell because the wrath of God will never be satisfied against them. For there is no duration which is enough to pay an infinite debt of sin. And that is what their debt is. Every sin against God is an infinite sin against an infinite God, which means He has an infinite wrath against it. It will never be abated. 
God is a loving God, a gracious God, but He will condemn sin. In His grace, though, He has provided the person of Jesus Christ. We see what Christ did in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins. Not just that Christ died. He didn't die for His own sin. He didn't die because He needed to for Himself, but He died for our sins according to our scriptures. Secondly, he was buried. That is, he, w- he legitimately died. He genuinely died. And he was put in, the, put in the ground for three days. And then he was raised, thirdly, on the third day, according to the scripture. So Jesus Christ lived a righteous life, absorbed an infinite wrath, paid the debt, genuinely died, genuinely rose, and genuinely is still ascended into heaven. He has not died again, unlike everyone else who was simply resuscitated, but he has been resurrected and remains alive even to this day. Jesus Christ is the infinite God-man. He is, he is the teacher, but He is also one with the Father, and He deserves the same kind of worship as the Father, and He is fully God in every way while also having taken on the mantle of manhood. And we want to remember not just who God is, the infinite God-man, we also remember what He did, that is, He died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin and absorb God's wrath against us. How do we get the, um, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us? That's the fifth word of the gospel. It is the word faith. The gospel must be believed to be appropriated. We, we don't believe in universalism. We don't believe that everyone gets there eventually somehow, some way. We believe that if someone gets there, they must get there on the basis of faith alone. They trust in Christ alone. And, and faith is not intellectual assent. It's not understanding that Jesus Christ was a real man and he taught really good things and he did really good, and he did really good things as well. Certainly the Pharisees believed in the literal personhood of Jesus Christ. They saw Him. They believed He lived. But that was not enough to save them. The demons believe not only that Jesus Christ lived, but they also believe and understand that Jesus came from heaven and that He was one with the Father. They also believe that He did miracles. They also believe He died. They also believe He was resurrected from the dead. They believe He's ascended in heaven. And that does not save them. It's merely an intellectual understanding without the transfer of trust into Him. Faith is believing and trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. We, we, we ask the question oftentimes, I've asked this question dozens and dozens of times, maybe you have as well. Um, somebody needs the gospel and we say, on what basis should God, should God save you? So if, if you were to stand before God and He were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you tell Him? And invariably, I don't know how many times I've heard this, they say, well, I'm... I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I'm not a murderer or anything. I mean, I do. I have some faults, but I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty much okay. And friends, there's only one answer to that question: Why should I let you into my heaven? And the answer is, you shouldn't, because there's nothing in me that would compel you to to be kind to me, to let me into your presence. I can't stand in your presence. There's nothing in me. There's no reason why you should let me in, except I trust in Jesus Christ alone. For my salvation, I, I know I have nothing to offer you, and I know Jesus has everything to offer you. So I'm, I'm trusting that when He died for me, that was enough, and I believe that you're satisfied with Him, and because you're satisfied with Him, and I believe in Him, you're satisfied with me, friends. That's the only answer. It's a trust that the Christ has done what we need. We we need, we need a faith 
that says, I believe in Christ alone and nothing more. It is only Him. It is nothing of us. This, this, this key phrase, we believe in Christ alone, was so critical that when the Martin Luther translated Romans 3.28, which reads, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, Luther translated it this way, a man is justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law. It's only faith. It's only faith in Christ that saves us. There is nothing else. But it's not just faith in Christ alone for the washing away of our sin. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely critical. But friends, it's also a faith that He will transform us and change us. We're believing. When we believe in Jesus, we're not just saying, wash away my sin so I can go do what I want to do. We're saying, wash away my sin, cleanse me, send the Spirit to live within me so that I can live to please you. The gospel is that God redeems us from the penalty of sin and the gospel is that He redeems us from the power of sin so that we can, we can live for Him and do righteous things that honor and glorify the Lord. We've seen that. That's, that's essentially what Romans 5-8 to 8 is all about. It's the process of sanctification and how God is saving us so that we might live with Him. He says in eight, chap, chapter 8, verse 2, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You're no longer subject to the law of sin and death so that the requirement of the law, verse 4, might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, so we no longer walk according to the flesh, and now we can do some of the things that you require of us. Not, not as an attempt to gain our salvation, but, but as an expression of gratitude for our salvation. We need to remember that the gospel call, the gospel the gospel commission that, that the Savior Himself gave to us is that we are to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded us. That's, that's Matthew 28, 20. Hand in hand with the gospel is not just believing in Jesus' death, but also believing in Jesus' transformative purposes in our life. And friends, that, that's countercultural, isn't it? Not just countercultural like outside these walls, but countercultural within the church of Christ. People want their sin washed away. People say it's all about about uh, taking your sin away and, and removing the, the punishment of God against you. But it, it's far more than that. It's also about so that we can live with Him. There's one more word. For, for years, I would have said the gospel, six words, grace, man, God, Christ, faith, and I would have stopped there. A number of years ago, um, through a variety of means, the Lord awakened my eyes to see that there's one more word that we need, and it's the word hope. The object of the gospel is God. Sin has separated us from God, and the gospel is designed to restore us to God. The gospel is about getting us to God. For years in my house, um, my children thought that weddings were about wedding cakes. That it's all about the acquisition of a good piece of cake, and there's evaluation of, you know, which is better, the bride's cake, the groom's cake. We've got to try each of them, maybe try each of them a couple times, just make sure we get it. And we, the, the, the whole wedding, the whole, the whole wedding ceremony is just endured until you can get to cake. Well, this year we did a wedding in our home, in our family, and we have discovered that weddings are more than about cake. Now, I like cake. At times I've loved cake too much. But I like cake. But a wedding is about, I get a wife. Are you kidding me? I get a wife to spend my life with. And friends, that's the gospel. 
It's not just that I get my sin wiped away. It's not just that I get to do good stuff. It is that we get God. Listen to what, listen to what um, our Savior says. John chapter 14. You're familiar with this passage, but I think too often we overlook the first part of the section that we know. John 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus is in heaven making a place for all those who belong to Him to reside when they get there. He, he, he wants us there. In fact, He says, verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself. He's building a place so that He can bring us to Him. you catch that? The object isn't to get to the place. The object is to get to Him. And He says that where I am, there you may be also. I want you with Me. My gospel is to get you to Me. And friend, if you, if you can think about the gospel in terms of I get heaven and I get forgiveness and I get redemption and I, and I get, I get streets of gold and I get, I get relationships that are fixed and I get no more sin and you can think about heaven in those terms and God isn't there, then you have not believed the gospel and you are not saved. Because the gospel is given to us to get us to Him. I mean, think about the very name of the name of Jesus. We just read this a couple of weeks ago, Matthew chapter one. This is this has been this has been all over the place for months. And you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He came in the garden. We're separated from him, and he came to restore us to him, so that we might be with him. Friends, that's the gospel. The gospel is to bring us to God. That is biblical hope. That's the gospel. Six words. Grace, man, God, Christ, faith, hope. That's what we tell people. And the beauty of, the beauty of that little outline is at different places, different times, you, you won't have time to unfold all of it, but maybe somebody that you're talking to is just under deep conviction of sin. And you don't have to convince them they're a sinner. They are well aware they're a sinner. Fine. You can run over that and you can get straight to faith and explain it is faith in Christ alone and His transforming work in your life. And so, you, so we can dip in and out of here and apply these truths to the people we're interacting with. That's the gospel in six words. I think I took, I don't know, 30 minutes to explain it. I can do it in three. And friend, if this is where you are this morning, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, You need to believe this in order to be saved. And friends, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is what you tell people who are not saved. What is the gospel? The gospel is that God is gracious and merciful toward mankind. He has, He loves us and He wants us to be in fellowship with Him and He has provided a means to bring us into fellowship with Him. And we need Him to act on our behalf so that we don't attempt to earn or merit that salvation because we are sinners. We are sinners through and through. We are sinners by nature. We are sinners by what we do. We are sinners by what we think and by what we desire. There is nothing self-righteous in us. We are incapable of doing anything to make Him to be pleased with us. 
And because of that, God will condemn us. Yes, God is a loving God. Yes, He is a God of grace. Yes, He pours out His love in in many ways, even on unregenerate, unsaved people, but He will not withhold His wrath from those who reject Him. He will be unrelenting in His wrath against Him, in, in, uh, against the unbeliever. But because of that grace, God has also sent the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, to earth, so that Christ, who was genuinely God, is genuinely God, existed in eternity in heaven, and is co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. He sent Him to earth. Christ assumed the mantle of manhood. He was a genuine man and genuine God at the same time, died on the cross for our sin, so that we might have His righteousness granted or imputed to us, and our sin was imputed to Him. He took our wrath, we get His blessing. And we get that through faith, by simply believing in Him, by by trusting that He alone, by saying, God, I can't save myself, I cannot do it on my own, You must save me. If I will be saved, You must do it. And we do that, we believe that, so that we get the hope of glory, that we get to be with Him. We, are, we get to be restored to God in fellowship with Him, in communion with Him for all of eternity. And if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, would you believe that today? All of your eternal future is dependent on what you say to that question, will you believe? So will you believe? Friends, that's the gospel actually in a hair under three minutes. And, and you can say that. You can communicate that gospel. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that's the message that we take. Grace, man, God, Christ, faith, hope. One more thing about the gospel. Let's make it even more simple. The gospel in one sentence. And when I wrote this, I omitted two key words. You can pencil them in on the outline if you want. We believe... Our sin is imputed to Christ and Christ's righteousness is imputed to us so that we can enjoy God forever. That's the gospel. We believe, we have faith that our sin was imputed to Christ. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us to get us to God so that we might enjoy Him forever. That's the gospel message that we take. Does that gospel message save people? Yeah. Only people like you and me Jack and Susie and Mai Mai in Cambodia and people in Papua New Guinea and all over the world. It is a saving gospel. It is the only gospel that can ever save. Our power to help people, my friends, is not in ourselves. Our power to help people is in the message we carry. And God has designed to use us in the proclamation of that gospel. So know the gospel, preach the gospel, preach the simplicity of the gospel, preach the clarity of the gospel. Grace, man, God, Christ, faith, hope. Father, would you be pleased to use us this year in increasing effectiveness in preaching the gospel. Make us bold with it. Make us clear with it. And might you be compelling to those who hear what we have to say about the glorious news of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.